0: Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.
1: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the Food Research and Action Center, leading the way to ensure justice and equity are the center of the nation's efforts to end hunger in America. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Award-winning documentarian and journalist Soledad O'Brien and Temple University professor Sarah Gojer-Grab join the Washington Post to discuss their work exposing hidden hunger on college campuses. Let's listen.
2: Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer at the Washington Post. We just saw a very disturbing clip from a documentary called Hungry to Learn. Here with me today are its producer, the award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien, and with her, a Temple University sociology professor who's featured extensively in the movie, Sarah Goldrick-Rab. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Thanks, Thanks for having me. having me. Well, I'm delighted. Soledad, I'd like to start with you. This is a stunning statistic that comes out of this movie that something like 45% of college students experience hunger at some point in their career on campus. How can that be in the wealthiest nation in the world?
3: Yeah, and that statistic came from the work of Sarah Goldratt and her colleagues, and and we thought the same thing. Like, that can't be right. That can't be accurate. And what does food insecurity actually mean to these students? The reason we got into this documentary was um, because we started seeing these stories about students who are hungry. And very much like Sarah says in the documentary, we first thought, wow, it's the sad story of just a handful of students for whom it's just a, a juggle. To be able to afford things, but then you start realizing that it's more and more and more. And then when Sarah started doing her study, which is sort of how we begin the documentary and to some degree wrap up the documentary as she does the study over time, you begin to realize that you have a systemic problem. This is not, in fact, the sad story of a handful of students who are struggling. This is the story of a system that has failed students because there's so many obstacles for them to be able to both pay for college. That's very very expensive. And also be able to eat regularly, like what I, as a mother of four children, would call eating a normal meal two or three times a day. So that's really how we got started in all of this. And, and that, I think,
2: um, that research was so shocking, it's what kicked it off for us. So I'd love to ask you, Sarah, about the research. How did you get, tell me a little bit about the data that took you to this shocking statistic, and then a little bit more about the conditions that you have personally experienced underlying this this huge number. Well, the data come from
1: students all over this country. And initially, when my team first began to hear about this issue, we were learning about it in Wisconsin, where I was then a professor. A student in another study that I was doing, which was about paying for college more broadly, when she was asked, how are you? She literally responded, I'm not okay. I haven't eaten in two days. And at the time, there were no studies on this. And this wasn't something that colleges were talking about. There were some students who knew about it. There were some advisors and professors who might've seen it, but there wasn't much out there that indicated this was even a thing. So we proceeded to do survey after survey after survey. In fact, this spring we released our fifth report before the pandemic hit. Our fifth report has data um, in it from almost 500,000 students across the country collected from more than 400 colleges and universities. And we, in fact, do see these really consistently high rates of food insecurity across community college students and across public university students. We don't know as much about what's happening at private colleges and universities because they don't tend to do the survey. And you know, it's hard to know what's going on in higher ed if you're not actually asking the questions. The conditions that we see, it's all over the place. It's students who can't um, get enough work, so they can't make ends meet. Financial aid is very rarely enough There are students who grew up on the free and reduced price lunch program and then find themselves graduating from high school, going to college, and finding that that program is
2: no longer there for them. There are a lot of different ways that this can happen. Sarah, there's a very striking scene when you talk to your grandfather in the middle of this, and he talks about a betrayal of the younger generation. Are you seeing students who are truly, to put it bluntly, making a decision between eating and staying in college?
1: I am, and you know,
2: (sighs) Not only
1: have I now seen that in my research and um, I've seen it among the students I've interviewed, I'm now seeing it in my own class. I'm currently teaching 35 students at Temple University, mostly sophomores, juniors, seniors, some in their fifth or sixth years. And from the very first welcome survey that I gave them, when I just asked them what challenges you're facing this semester, several of them literally said having enough money to eat. You know, it is really hard to get students focused on learning at a time when they don't know where their next meal's coming from. And you also
3: have to imagine now with coronavirus, right? It's gotten so much worse. I mean, all of the students you see in our documentary, it started with Izzy as she's walking through campus. uh, And you saw uh, Eve with the blonde hair talking about, like, she's not sure college is for her. Every day they make the decision it would just be easier to quit. It would just be easier to stop because then at least the pressure would stop. So with coronavirus, so with that, I know that our students have really um, have really now, right they're not on campus or they've gone back home. So some of the support they were getting from the campus,
2: even if it was very little support, they have none of that now in many instances. Soledad, one of the questions I have to you is about the range of students, which was very striking to me from a young man who wants to be a pilot in the ROTC. To a homeless young woman, was that surprising to you for somebody who's been doing a lot of work on humanitarian issues and looked at a a range of other areas where there are huge inequities? Does this range? Did it surprise you when you were doing the reporting and the coverage? You know, I think at first, yes. But then I realized pretty quickly that actually no. Right.
3: I mean, when we look at our, our different groups of students, what was so interesting was that they were so diverse. It wasn't that there's this number of homeless students who are struggling. Or it's a number of students who are putting themselves through college who are not homeless, who are struggling. It's actually just a lot of students where there is this gap where they just don't have easy access to the funds to be able to either take on a ton of debt or be able to pay for, you know, what is not, I don't think, a luxury, but their their meals. So, yeah, and you realize pretty quickly it's all demographics, uh, not necessarily socioeconomic, obviously, but but racially, ethnically, uh, and even a higher socioeconomic class than you might imagine. For students who would be considered in New York City middle class, often that means paying for college and just go figure out how you're going to.
2: Sarah, you have talked and I hope you can hear me. We may have a a trouble here with the sound a little bit. Good, you can hear me. Um, Sarah, you've talked about a student sharing their secret with you. Tell me a little bit about the role that shame can play in perpetuating this issue.
1: Yeah, it's a big issue. You know, many of these students come to college in search of a better life. Some of them come from poverty. Some of them come from a middle class struggle to just kind of not fall downward. Something a lot of families can identify with right now. And when this challenge happens for them in college, they're embarrassed. This isn't who they thought they'd be in college. The student who, for example, might be shoplifting in order to make ends meet, or the student who might have to get an extra swipe from her friend in the dining hall so that she can have something. This is stigmatizing for them. It makes them feel ashamed and it makes them hide. And one of the things that's so important for everyone to know is that we all have a role to play here because if we can help them know that they're not alone, that in fact there were so many students affected, then they begin to understand that they did not cause this problem individually. This isn't the small problem of a number of, of individuals making bad decisions. The, these numbers can only be this large when there's a systemic failure. Yeah, it was,
3: was interesting for us as well, you know, when we were trying to book the documentary, uh, it was really hard, right? You're, you're asking students who are already embarrassed that they're at a food pantry. You know, will you take part in talking about every facet of your life very openly? It was really, really hard to get them to talk uh, about not just their hunger, but their entire lives and their circumstances. And then in many cases, the students didn't want to tell their parents, it's definitely, especially if their parents also were struggling. The students felt that they were adding to the burden of their parents if they said, listen, I'm hungry. So they would make, I mean, you talk about being incredibly isolated. It wasn't anything you could share with anybody because they felt, I'm only going to add to the burden of my struggling mom or my struggling parents if I tell them I'm hungry. So why would
2: I possibly tell them? So Soledad, you've been out among food banks. There's been a 40% increase, I believe, in the number of people suffering food insecurity beyond campuses across the whole country. Tell me what you're seeing on the front lines and what are yeah, any I mean, solutions you're seeing? It's in- Now, I'm
3: sure you've seen this coverage, too, right? The the long lines, they're not even lines, right? I mean, a a line is sort of a bunch of people standing up waiting to get into the the facility. Now there are blocks and blocks and blocks of cars lined up in some places where they're trying to get access to a food bank. Uh, And certainly in New York City, we see lines just going around the block. Of people who need access to food, obviously coronavirus has made uh, the situation for people who, in many cases, have lost their jobs, have lost their support, have moved in together because they're losing their housing. Uh, it's made it much, much uh, more uh, difficult. Plus, at the same time, for many of these food banks who rely on charitable donations, you know, in many cases that too has dried up because. In the economic outlook, no one's exactly certain of what the future is going to bring. And so anybody who runs a nonprofit, and I run a small nonprofit, all the funders are saying like, well, let's slow it down a minute and let's see. And so it's kind of a a double whammy for these food banks that are trying to figure out how do you give people enough support while the problem grows, the need grows, but also your funders
2: aren't really sure how much they can really help. Sarah. Sarah. Temple University in the last couple of weeks had an outbreak and shut down in-person classes, I believe. That had huge repercussions for all students. But tell me in particular what that means for food insecure students.
1: Well, look, any disruption, any big change falls the hardest on people who don't have wealth to fall back onto. So look, students are struggling in many, many ways. Some of them may have used the campus food pantry. We are working to keep that open, but let's be honest, that kind of food is never enough for people to get by on. Um, Anybody who had to make a change to their housing, some students are locked into leases and unable to get out there. Those pressures from rent, the way they affect regular people, also affect college students and then crunch their budget so they can't afford to eat. You know, it is a terribly difficult situation. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of the students get very angry with the university without really seeing that one of the big causes, as the documentary shows, of this situation, is the systematic defunding of public universities like Temple and failure of congressional action to really step in here and to help these students.
2: So we, we can look at Izzy, <laughs> So bad, if I may, and the CARES Act, I wanted to ask you about specifically with Temple. Billions of dollars have gone into that. Is that not enough, Sarah? Does Is it having the right kind of impact or not? You know, it was wonderful
1: that it happened. Um, but after years and years and years of decades, frankly, of defunding higher education, it is amazing how big the hole is. So essentially, that money was thrown into a massive... Whole where it began to fill up a little bit of the need our students have massive needs for support financial support and we do not have a large endowment to cover it it's easy for people to look at say a 600 million dollar endowment and say wow I can't imagine having 600 million dollars but that only amounts on a per student basis to about 12 to 16 thousand dollars a year uh, or sorry total which only throws off maybe $500 a year in support for an individual student. So we're talking about students who owe maybe $10,000 on their bills. And what Congress provided to them was just a tiny drop in that bucket. So yes, there is much more needed here.
2: And Soledad, let me come to you now because I'd really like to ask you about the bill that uh, the legislation that Kamala Harris introduced last year, the Basic uh, Act. Um, is that a good way? Is it, are you looking, hoping for federal dollars to help these problems or do you see other solutions? Uh, I, think, I think the solution
3: has to be in some kind of uh, payout to students and also in giving them more access and more flexibility. And I was gonna say um, that Izzy is a very good example of what you were just talking about, right? So Izzy, who you saw in that little clip there, um, she remained on campus, but her college then went digital. So she's paying rent, but her, her, her off-campus job now is right up because of the coronavirus. So she has no income to try to help pay her rent. The campus food bank is open, but they are only stacked now with mac and cheese. That's it. So she's eating mac and cheese day after day. She makes the decision to move out west. In order to live with her sister in a trailer on her sister's property and now she's trying to decide do i just drop out of school and get two or three part-time jobs right to try to make up for this hemorrhaging of money that she basically has all this money she owes in her loans her loans will immediately start coming due the minute she drops out right so you can see this dilemma which goes back to your original question yeah there has to be some kind of federal response that really helps these mm-hmm. students because The system is kind of like this house of cards. And if you pull out a card, you can see how a student like Izzy, who's a good student, who's a dedicated student, who's a hard worker, who has done really everything right in spite of some very difficult circumstances, she just can't get ahead. How does a student like that survive? What usually happens is she'll drop out. She'll owe $35,000 in debt because she's taken out loans. And now she's a girl with no diploma who has a $35,000 debt to start her career.
2: Sarah, to go from this this broad federal approach to look more locally, there's a Drexel student in your documentary who talks about um, taking food from you know leftover food from restaurants and other sources around the um, around the city. Philadelphia is known for having some really sort of remarkable initiatives. Are you seeing local initiatives that can help these issues, or is that a sort of hopeless uh, approach? Look,
1: there are a few, and they help small numbers of people. So they're they're useful, and we want to have them. But the real questions here are about scale. And when we look at the places where we don't see as much food insecurity and rates are much lower, it's clear what works. What works is having institutions that have a great deal of money on a per student basis and students who come from families that are well resourced. So if you want to put together a perfect situation where this isn't happening, we would be doing more to ensure that every student and every family has a living wage and is able to actually make ends meet. And we would send them to colleges and universities that have sufficient per student support to be able to help the students. Unfortunately, right now, American higher education is financed such that the places with the most money are those with the wealthiest students, not the students with the most need. And these smaller nonprofits can't do much, unfortunately, to level that inequality. They can't deal with the fact that the Community College of Philadelphia gets far less support than the University of Pennsylvania, despite it having its big endowment.
2: So just one quick question for the two of you before we finish. You probably have about a minute each. But do you see any causes for optimism that could come out of this crisis with some sort of uh, reshaping of the inequities, some sort of overhaul that could potentially change things? And as I said, I'd love to hear from both of you, but a quick answer each, please.
3: Sarah, I'm going to go first because I think you're the one with the $64,000 answer as the researcher. What inspires me is these young people are actually moving into activism. And you could see it in the process of the documentary. They began to realize it's not me, there's a systemic problem. And they wanted to jump in and actually figure out how to fix the problem, not just hide because of shame and not just say, Well, if I can get through, that's good enough.
2: Thank you. Okay. Sarah,
1: Mm -hmm. Two reasons for optimism, Um, the first is that we're seeing faculty and staff all over the country recognizing their needs, uh, recognizing their students needs and doing their darndest to step up and support them and to the extent that they learn how to do that, they're going to be able to take care of some folks during some really difficult times. Of course, that's not a systemic solution. So the other bright hope is that in the last several weeks. For the first time ever in a presidential campaign, we heard one candidate's team utter the words homeless community college students, acknowledging their existence. And there is a platform that includes supports for food and housing insecurity. And we have a vice presidential candidate, as you noted earlier, Kamala Harris, who has introduced legislation to address these challenges. To the extent that these issues are elevated to that level of policy discussion and people go to the polls and vote based on those issues, then we can really begin to see change.
2: Solidaridad Brand, Sarah Goldring-Grab, thank you both very much for joining me and for such an eye-opening documentary and discussion of this troubling issue. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.